Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, of course, and co-hosting today is Michael Butterfield. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing well. How are you, Al? I'm always good, even when I'm sick. <laughs> Wear your mask around me today. <laughs> yeah, I'll stay away from the microphone just to be safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. No, it, it should be all okay. <laughs> we'll be we'll be quarantined in the studio together for four weeks. <laughs> no. now, that sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, well, the whole country's in a horror movie right now. Um, speaking of of, of uh, quarantine, we've got the uh, the great David Talbot with us today. How you doing, David? I am very healthy, thank you, Al. That's good. Down here in San Francisco, miles away. <laughs> good place to be, actually. Well, I think. Um, so uh, now, David. Now. Uh, um, we know you, of course, from uh, a couple of great books from before, you know, The uh, Devil's Chessboard and The uh, Season of the Witch. Season of the Witch is is incredible. I love that book myself. Um, oh, thank you. Now, um, and now we come up to the newest book of um, Between Heaven and Hell, and it's the story of my stroke. Now, this one uh, really kind of, um, I've listened to it twice. It's pretty... Um, I don't know. I can't. I can't come up with the word, but it really affected me. I think uh, a couple of reasons. One, my mother had a stroke, and um, mm-hmm. and died from it. And um, mm-hmm. just recently, or recently, um, I don't know if you knew Hank um, Alperelli. Um, yes, of yeah, course. And that that really shocked me. He had a stroke, and then he died. And I was, and I had just been talking to him. We were 
texting back and forth, and we were talking because I was getting someone, uh, Sean S S Sullivan, and he knew him, and he was coming on the show. So we were talking ahead of time, uh -huh. and we were doing all this stuff, and all of a sudden he's stroke, and then I was just, wow, that really, man, it's devastating. Um, no, I remember that, and I knew Hank, and uh, not well, but I respected his work, of course. And when I heard about his death uh, from the stroke, it, uh, you know, it always uh, is a sober reminder of how fortunate uh, people who do survive, like myself, are, because so many don't. Right. Um, so when you, um, when you explain that, uh, and, and the stroke and stuff. Um, how is recovery for something like that to where you are now? I mean, you're, you're functioning, you're doing speeches um, and, and, and writing, and you're quite active on social media. So what was the recovery time? Well, it was, it was quite lengthy, in, in really, and it began in the hospital. You know, Al, I write about it in, in Heaven and Hell, Between Heaven and Hell. Um, it took five weeks, actually, for them to kind of piece me together again in the hospital, in the stroke ward down here in San Francisco, in Davies Hospital, a very good stroke ward unit. And, uh, you know, all kinds of therapists, uh, physical therapists, uh, you know, doctors, neurosurgeons, you know, it was kind of like Humpty Dumpty and all the King's Man were trying to put me together again. Um, I couldn't walk, I couldn't swallow, I couldn't see straight. Uh, so it was one day at a time. I had to learn how to be very patient after being a kind of alpha male my whole life and hard charging. My wife called me Mr. Toad from the uh, Winds in the Willows because I <laughs> tended to be very propulsive and compulsive. And so even the stroke ward staff had to tell me to slow down as they were kind of uh, rehabbing me. But, you know, I had to relearn to walk and, and speak. Um, so, you know, I just, thinking people like Hank Alberelli, I feel so fortunate. And my own mother, not speaking of mothers, uh, died of a stroke, actually, a series of strokes. Uh, and she was much younger uh, when she died than I am. She was six, uh, 60, and I'm 68 now. So, you know, there, but for the grace of God, and I, I think about that all the time, and... Uh, you know, I had to learn how to be patient. It took me another year, year and a half, really, after getting out of the hospital to be kind of functional. I end up walking around. I can't drive, but I uh, walk outside with a cane just to be careful. I'm kind of chronically dizzy, you know, kind of discombobulated a little bit. And, you know, speaking still a little bit of a strain now and then, as you might be able to detect, but... Um, you know, uh, all in all, I'm operating at the same level. Some people think I'm even uh, kind of intellectually more acute now these days. <laughs> I'm a little easier to live with, I think, too. I'm a little less kind of driven and, and uh, you know, stressed out as I used to be. I had to learn how to be a little more patient. Well, I think you sound really good Yeah, uh, yeah. from me. Uh, well, and I, I was curious, you. how does that affect your writing? Yeah. Well, that was really weird, you know, because I never was particularly introspective as a writer. I wrote about power and politics, history, you know, the big subjects that uh, men tend to write about. And, uh, and you know, I, I kind of was reluctant to do a memoir because I thought that was kind of a narcissistic exercise 
And frankly, most memoirs, really, I think most memoirs haven't earned the right to write about themselves because their lives aren't all that deep or interesting, and they're not that great at writing about them. <laughs> but, you know, I can count on that, uh, two hands maybe the great memoirs I've read where a, pe- a person has lived a life fully enough and is articulate enough about writing about it that they've, as I say, earned the right to do that. So, you know, writing this particular book began more as an exercise for me. It was a therapeutic exercise. I did it on Facebook. I couldn't write. I still can't touch type. I can't use my right hand with the same dexterity. And so I had to unpack each word I had to correct. I was making mistakes all the time. So I was writing painstakingly slowly. But I needed to communicate with other people and to see if I could still write a sentence, if I could still gather my thoughts. And lo and behold, you know, what I wrote about my recovery, about my stroke, and what I'd been through began to hit a nerve with people. Hundreds of people on my Facebook uh, page, thousands really, uh, ultimately, uh, began writing back to me uh, about their own ordeals, you know, heart attacks, uh, strokes they've had, other kind of calamities, cancer, or loved ones who died. And so uh, they really inspired me to keep going. And then a publisher down here in San Francisco, Chronicle Books, Mark Talbert, had just been hired there to run a, a new imprint of Chronicle Books. And he was kind of a fan of my writing and was aware of what I was writing. And he helped guide me and say, look, this could be a book. And that was the first time I thought uh, my story might have a wider audience. And, uh, you know, I've been so kind of... Um, gratified as I go around speaking here in the Bay Area to really quite big audiences. People, I think, are just glad to see me alive again (laughs) and uh, know that I can uh, help inspire others who've been through something similar. I feel I'm in a brotherhood of, uh, how to put it, of uh, of the sort of half-alive people in a way. Because the stroke does that to you. You feel like you're in uh, shadow and light and you never fully, I think, for most people at least, recover. You're always aware that the shadow is still there. And I don't mind that as a writer, being a little more interior, a little more um, aware of the dark side now. Mm. And you you mentioned uh, two strong women in your life and how they survived, but how that uh, changed them personally. And and I know that from a fact from uh, my partner's mother that had a stroke. And then um, afterwards... She cried at almost anything, and before that, she was a real strong, aggressive woman. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that it's changed you in that way as well? Yeah, I, I describe my emotions as like a mountain storm now. I mean, they're very unpredictable. I, I will cry at <laughs> sort of the slightest provocation. You know, uh, one of the most emotionally overwhelming uh, moments for me after my stroke was uh, it was not long after I came home. My son, Joe Talbot, began filming his first feature as a director, a young director. He he made the movie The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was a, a huge oh, wow. critical hit yeah. last year. And so uh, to see Joe at age 28, after all the ups and downs that his mom, Camille, and I have been through as his parent, you know, there he was directing this army of people on the streets of San Francisco, police, you know, shutting down streets, you know, crew running everywhere, actors getting into character. And Joe was the uh, sort of uh, calmness at the center of the storm. 
as a director, and I was so proud of him. Uh, and, you know, the fact that I lived long enough to see him make his first movie, which I knew had been his dream for years. He'd been working five years with Jimmy Fails, the star of the movie, who's like another son to us, uh, you know, on this film. And finally it came to fruition. They got the backing from Brad Pitt's company, uh, Plan B, and from A24, and they were off, and they were doing this amazing, beautiful movie. Uh, and then he won Best Director Award at Sundance later. Um, and, and to be there on the icy streets at Park City and not knowing whether I could even walk, you know, um, just seeing the acclaim of, uh, and a standing ovation that the film got there. And then it's been a, a magic ride ever since. So that is one of the main reasons I'm glad I'm still alive. It's not so much what I have to do anymore. I feel I've written the books that I need to write. But it's seeing my loved ones and what they're accomplishing now. My wife is writing her own book, a, a beautiful literary biography of Robert Louis Stevenson and his American wife, who's this kind of kick-ass pioneer woman, Fanny Stevenson. So i just enjoying sort of this uh, kind of creative achievement around me from afar. How's this affected you spiritually? Like, um, I, I didn't really take you as a religious person, so... Um, does this change that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I use an image from William Blake on the cover because, strangely, in the middle of my stroke, I didn't realize I was having the stroke the first 24 hours. It was called a spedring stroke. It was kind of clandestine. I, I didn't realize that, you know, I was in the first stages of a stroke. In any case, I, I was, for some reason, channeling the kind of ecstatic art of the poet and, uh, uh, painter William Blake and I used an image saying that I was trying to give people some kind of hope because we we're going through yet another sort of dark period post-Trump period or in the middle of Trump at the time um, and telling people you know hang in there we'll get through this and I put this image of Blake from Blake and that's the image that is on the cover of my book so I had this strangely ecstatic experience. It was both, like I say, uh, like going through hell, but it was also strangely uplifting, what I've been through. Uh, it reminded me of how precious life is. It reminded me how lucky I am to be alive still. It reminded me of, of savoring each moment I am still alive. I used to, in the past, you know, like most of us, live for the future, live for deadlines. I was always on as a writer, as a journalist business deadlines, journalistic deadlines, you know, I was never in the moment. And so reading, you know, simple kind of, uh, you know, advice, like from people who are kind of, you know, simple but deep at the same time, like Ram Dass, the spiritual guide for my generation, who had a stroke at my age and he lived uh, many years uh, more. He, he died just recently. And, of course, his famous book was Be Here Now, so I learned the wisdom of that. Be here now is 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 living day to day, moment to moment, because I realize now how how contingent, how uh, uh, kind of fragile life is for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Now, now you still um, stayed active, and uh, I know you sent me that speech um, about the deep state then and now, and uh, for the Praxis um, Peace Institute. Um, so the deep state, um, Donald Trump, um, what keeps him going against something like the deep state? Well, you know, 
many of us who are scholars of uh, American history, presidential history, as in my case, going back to you know the uh, 20th century and the Cold War and the, the Kennedy administration. You know, as I write in my book, Brothers, um, and then in The Devil's Chessboard, I think I make a convincing case that Kennedy was the victim of the national security state because he was trying to end the Cold War prematurely and met with massive resistance from what Eisenhower had warned him about, the military-industrial complex. And by the end of his administration, I interviewed many people who had worked for him, Arthur Schlesinger, Robert McNamara, Ted Sorensen, they all said that the administration had really shrunk to a very small size, that he only could depend on his brother, Bobby Kennedy, Attorney General, and a handful of other advisors. He didn't control the Pentagon. He didn't control the CIA. That's what Arthur Schlesinger, the historian who worked for Kennedy, told me. He didn't control the State Department. So... um, Kennedy ultimately, I think, was gunned down by a conspiracy that grew out of the national security state. And Alan Dulles, I think, played a key role in orchestrating that uh, coup, really, and also the cover-up, because Alan Dulles, who'd been director of the CIA under Kennedy until he was fired after the Bay of Pigs tobacco in Cuba, uh, then got himself uh, appointed by President Johnson to the Warren Commission. And so you had a case of the Foxes, you know, uh, controlling the investigation. Um, anyway, why has Trump, though, been able to survive the animosity of these many of these same types, people in the national security establishment? Uh, former CIA Director John Brennan, who served under Obama, was in an open war with Trump from the very beginning. Uh, of course, uh, the people who blew the whistle on him over the Ukraine scandal were CIA uh, officers who worked within the CIA, uh, the White House. And, uh, you know, much of the CIA and the national security state was uh, testifying against him um, and trying to overthrow him during the impeachment process. They failed. They struck at the king and they failed to kill him. So he's now emboldened. Now, how did he survive? I make the case in my recent speech, which I delivered down here in Sonoma to the peace group, as you mentioned, Praxis, was I think Trump has succeeded in dividing and conquering the deep state. You know, while elements of the CIA are adamantly opposed to him, he meanwhile appointed the queen of torture herself, uh, Gina Haspel, to the uh, be director of the CIA. And she broke protocol by coming to the last day of the union speech and jumping to her feet and applauding some of his most uh, bellicose lines. Um, so he's won over a number of people in the deep state while uh, insulting and infuriating others like former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and others who tried to school him about the necessity of diplomacy over war. And he, of course, you know, famously insulted them as, uh, as uh, babies, as losers, mm-hmm. and so on. So while he's alienated a significant faction of the CIA, of the Pentagon, of the national security state, he's won over enough of it to, by, for one thing, increasing their budget enormously and giving them free hand to do pretty much whatever they want around the world. There's so little, if any, civilian oversight now over our military and spy operations. So he's emboldened, he's empowered, he's uh, lavished, you know, huge amounts of money on them. 
And you succeed in, in seducing enough of them, winning enough of them over, where they can't move in, in uh, kind of uh, uh, a coordinated fashion against him. For one thing, also, the deep state is much bigger, more sprawling than it was during Kennedy's time. There's so many more agencies, more players, more power players, more power centers. So it was possible back in the early 60s for an Alan Dulles, who was a, quite a strong figure, to develop a consensus within the, the national security uh, complex that Kennedy had to go. It's not possible anymore to develop that same kind of consensus within the deep state. It's just too big and too uh, complex. So now, what do, what do you think of the timing now? So we've got Donald Trump in. We've got a fairly, fairly I don't know how, what you call it, dark times, I guess. It's pretty rough. Um and now the Democrats coming um, with two major candidates pretty much left. Um, where is that well, going to go? Well, you know, look, I, I'm a Bernie person, so I'm kind of in mourning after Super Tuesday. I, I was expecting and hoping for Bernie to do better, at least to win uh, key states like Texas and Massachusetts. So that was a setback. And, of course, you know, look, the Democrats are capable of playing some of the same voter suppression tricks that the Republicans do, particularly in Texas, the long lines, the voting machines that don't work, the voter suppression in the Latino district. You know, we don't have to go into that. We all know that. But uh, in any case, it was still disappointing, Bernie's turnout. He didn't get the young vote in the massive uh, new numbers that he needed and so on. So I think, you know, we may at the end of the day have to live with a, a Joe Biden, uh, you know, a ticket. Um, and, you know, of course, we'll see if he's smarter than Hillary Clinton, who should have reached across uh, the ideological aisle and brought a Bernie Sanders type on her ticket and said she put a, a bland centrist, Tim Kaine, on the ticket. We'll see if Biden's going to be as arrogant or if he's going to try and bring the party together by bringing a Bernie type on the ticket with him. In any case, I don't think Biden's a strong candidate. He's in many ways even weaker than Hillary Clinton. He seems old and doddering to me. He seems like he never was a particularly good debater. He's never particularly intellectually sharp. He's now he seems more befuddled than ever. Um, I don't think he's going to match up well against Trump on the debate stage. Uh, we all we've seen his sort of screaming old man act now. You know, it's kind of ridiculed on Saturday Night Live very effectively in other places. But at the end of the day, I think we have to sadly rally around this weak Democratic candidate because. As uh, you know, as corporate and as sort of uh, pro-war and as uh, you know, corrupt in many ways as Biden is and his legacy, he sure as hell is an improvement over the disaster we have in the White House now. So um, I'm hoping that Biden, at the end of the day, I think, as I say, brings together the party and and, and brings the progressive wing into uh, his uh, candidacy, that remains to be seen. But I don't think he, he can win without uh, strong progressive support. Bernie Sanders controls, you know, somewhere close to 50% of the party, and that includes people like me. So, you know, I'm not giving up on Bernie yet. Uh, we'll see about Michigan next week. That's a key battleground state. And if he wins there, you know, game on. Right, right. You just don't know. It can change real quick. Uh, yeah, and it would be better yeah. if we had a wicker chair in office right now. So, 
That's for sure. Yeah, I, I don't and, know. Hey, look, I'm, 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 uh, you know, uh, all blue all the way. You know, anybody but the uh, Trump. And so, you know, I will, like I say, I'll get health for this from some of my Bernie uh, fans. But um, you know, I will vote for Biden, and I will, uh, you know, actively support his campaign. But I hope we're not there quite yet. Uh, as I say, I'm going to wait at least until we see how he does in battleground states like uh, Michigan in the primary next week. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and Florida is important as well, right? Yeah. So um, it's, it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's kind of depressing. Actually, and I would think that um, a lot of the fans of your books would probably be more, more uh, Trump followers. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I too tend to cross over a bit. And in fact, Bernie himself, of course, has attracted some support from uh, former Trump supporters. A lot of white kind of working class guys from those battleground states were showing up at his rallies um, because they know they've been sold out. And the liberal elites have been part of their betrayal, not just sort of the right wing Republicans. Um, and they know Bernie is, is the real deal. He would confront corporate power. He will empower unions, he'll empower you know, working people. He'll narrow the wealth gap by taxing the super wealthy and so on. So there's a reason why a lot of those Trump types uh, who feel like marginalized and angry uh, that they've been screwed over by the liberal elites, there's a reason why they're coming to burning rallies. There's also a reason, like you say, some of them do read my books. I believe that American democracy has been sold out. It's been sold out most of my life. And uh, that the wrong people won. And that these people were the corporate elite, the people who belong to the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, people who are in power, uh, you know, sort of permanently in power, in the power elite, in the deep state, whatever you call it, uh, that mainly exist to empower Wall Street and uh, the 1% over the rest of us. So, um, you know, yes, if my books offer some enlightenment about how power really works in America, it's not only the left-wing people or liberals who want to read that. It's people who are, you know, uh, sort of Trump types, too, in many cases, or libertarians who distrust state power. Um, so I'm happy to have a wide ideological spectrum of, uh, of readers. So what do you think the um, outcome, what do you think it's uh, the, um, how is it going to turn out for all of us here if if uh, Trump gets in again? Well, I think the, com- the country will, will continue to fracture. I think we'll have uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, even civil disturbance beginning. Um, the environment is now under such stress. And, and the fact that he denies science, he denies climate, the climate crisis, gets actually more worrisome by the day. We now know that we're living in the hottest year in recorded history. Uh, we have an entire country that was on flames, Australia. Uh, we've never seen anything like the inferno down there that changed the, t- uh, the climate itself. It was creating such, uh, you know, hot, uh, high temperatures from the, the, uh, the fires there. So, you know, we have our problems here in California every year. The fire season is longer uh, than ever. 
is destroyed, you know, whole swaths of the state. PG&E, our utility, is on, uh, has gone bankrupt from dealing with the effects uh, of the fires, partly that they've caused. Um, so, you know, we're seeing a real crisis around the world that, that the Trump administration refuses to acknowledge. So I think these problems will only, uh, the wealth gap, um, the uh, student debt crisis, all the problems, the, the health care uh, epidemic, you know, now we're seeing the holes in our public health system more and more because the uh, coronavirus epidemic. All these things Bernie Sanders is speaking to, and he alone is really speaking as forcefully as he is about them. Elizabeth Warren, to some extent, but uh, she failed to actually make any impact, unfortunately, at the ballot box. So it was all on Bernie's shoulders, the 78-year-old guy, to wake up the country. And young people, by and large, are really, you know, jumping on, on his bandwagon because they realize they're screwed. You know, my kids are in their 20s. I have two sons, and I really fear for their future and their, their own children if they decide to have them. Many young people decide not. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even to bring new kids into the world because they're so alarmed about the future. So what do I think? I think we're in for even worse next four years if Trump does manage to get reelected. I don't think you know Biden would be that much better, but he'll be somewhat better. And so look, you know, Noam Chomsky once argued against some lefties, you know, about who said, "Oh, we shouldn't just keep voting for the lesser of two evils." And Noam Chomsky rightly said, "Yeah." But voting for the lesser of two evils means you get less evil. And so that's what we have to do. We have to be smart. Or the and evil of... be strategic. Yeah, or it's the evil of two lessers, as they say. <laughs> I have a quick question yeah, no, for you about the uh, coronavirus ahead. thing you were just mentioning. I just saw on the news that, uh, you know, yesterday the World Health Organization 
uh, amended the mortality rate by saying it's not 2.3%, it's actually more like 3.5%. And then just on the news while you were talking about Trump denying climate science, I saw that he's saying that the World Health Organization is probably wrong about that. How do you think mm-hmm. that kind of stuff is going to affect us, especially when you see that he's cutting the funding for the CDC and other things like that? Well, you know, his rank and file, his base is with him all the way and tends to believe when he cries fake news. And look, you know, his accusations of fake news against the corporate media aren't altogether wrong. You know, the New York Times was filled with so much anti-Bernie venom, as he called it, in the last uh, weeks, particularly leading up to Super Tuesday, that you have to acknowledge that the liberal media, so-called, the corporate media, have a huge bias, and they're trying to maintain their vision of the status quo. And an outsider like Bernie Sanders is seen as a, you know, a hostile agent by the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN. So they did everything they could to crush his, uh, his, uh, surgeons, his, uh, surging rather. Um, when it comes to science though, you know, I, uh, look, I believe in it. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't have my head in the sand. And so, I tend to listen to doctors. My sister's a doctor in Portland, Oregon. I talked to her recently about the epidemic. I read, uh, you know, medical uh, bulletins and warnings, and I take them uh, seriously. Uh, we have an idiot, as uh, you know, in the White House, a man who doesn't believe in any kind of uh, factual-based world. Uh, so I'm not taking any advice from him about how to protect myself from my family <laughs> against the epidemic. On the other hand, I, as a skeptical journalist, just have some questions about whether this epidemic is being somewhat overplayed. Um, the hysteria now is having major worldwide uh, economic impacts. Um, and, you know, I was saying earlier to Al that, you know, most of the front section, of news section of the New York Times today, which I get every day, I'm old school, I get the print version, most of that front section is dominated by the coronavirus epidemic. I've never seen that ever, where, you know, one kind of uh, uh, story, alarming as it is, dominates the entire news section of the Daily uh, New York Times. So has, has the media gone a little bit too far? Uh, I tend to think so. On the other hand, I don't believe Trump for a minute. I think the truth about the virus probably... Uh, exist somewhere in between. Um, and I think the truth, because we haven't uh, had enough testing, we don't even That's have right. enough testing kits yeah. in this country, we still don't know the full extent of what the epidemic could mean. Um, so, hey, look, I think uh, I'm I'm alarmed, but not unduly so at this point. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waiting and, and, and looking for more information each day. And and what and the big question is what what do we do? I mean, Trump is just there and he promotes this stuff. But when he's gone, what about all of his followers? They're still there. They don't they don't leave the country just because Trump gets out. So how do we how do we reckon uh, with those that type of logic? Well, uh, Trump both caused the um, kind of uh, grown. Uh, skepticism and disbelief in our institutions, but it also preceded Trump. And there's a reason why, you know, government has so little credibility. 
our agencies, our government agencies, they do tend to be sort of bought and owned by the, the corporate sector. And there's a reason why our media have so little kind of um, credibility with, with so many people, not just on the right, but among uh, people like me on the left, too, because they're seeing, again, this uh, bias towards the corporate interest, towards Wall Street, towards centrist campaigns like Joe Biden. And uh, so, you know, I think what we need to do, though, as a society, is to begin to rebuild our civil institutions. I think we need to actually, uh, in, in, in my profession, rebuild faith in journalism, which is very important uh, cornerstone of democracy, of course, by actually doing more credible journalism and challenging the uh, the editorial sort of hierarchies of these institutions, not to be so slanted, not to be so anti-Bernie in this case, or you know. Uh, so pro-Wall Street in other ways. Um, you know, they were covering it. I saw an article today. Every time uh, the economy was mentioned as being strong, which is kind of actually, uh, you know, a, a story that has a lot of holes, the economy is not strong in many ways. But every time the economy was talked, talk, you know, people wrote about it as being on the upswing. Trump was, was credited with that upswing, even though it began far be for Trump under under President Obama. And so there's this kind of, uh, you know, sometimes even latent misleading information we get in the press um, that needs to be challenged. And I think social media actually is a good bullshit detector. Social media gets a lot, you know, uh, flack these days for good reasons, you know, because it is often infiltrated and distorted. But I from my experience, people are very skeptical on social media and just kind of weed things out and find the information that they feel is valid. They share that and so on. And at least in my kind of community online, these are very sharp people. So it empowers them to use social media to talk back to the corporate media to say, look, uh, you know, you're not reading this. You're not seeing it the right way. I think we all need to be more activists as citizens. And not just sort of um, a rabble screaming and yelling and being whipped into a frenzy by demagogues like Donald Trump, but by being smart, responsible citizens that read, you know, reputable sources of information and come to our own decisions and then vote in the right way or join organizations. It's not just voting every two or four years. It's being we have to be citizens 24-7 now. I belong to a civic organization here in San Francisco. I, you know, meet, I speak before uh, groups all the time. That's what we have to do. We can't go to sleep like we did after we elected Obama and, and think, oh, he's got this, it's all cool. Obama disbanded his movement. That was a mistake. We have to stay uh, mobilized, like I say, 24-7. Yeah, so stop watching Fox News, Mike. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I—that's what I'm known for. Twenty-four <laughs> seven. Or, or, hey, or watch them, but you know, uh, watch you know a, a full spectrum of other sources too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Most of it's become very—it's just opinion. You know, there's not there's not much news. Um, no, right. You know, it's just people talking. Um, it, I'll 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 uh, I'll. Give you advice. Uh, give you a suggestion, your uh, listeners, about uh, one good source of reported information, not just uh, as you say commentary. We see all the commentary all the time, 
is The Intercept. That's Glenn Greenwald and uh, Jeremy Scahill's publication. They're both, of course, very good journalists. Glenn down in Brazil is fighting tooth and nail with the fascist regime down there, Bolsonaro. But he also weighs in, of course, on issues uh, in the U.S. And, of course, he was very involved in the Edward Snowden case, won the Pulitzer for his work on that uh, expose. And Jeremy Scahill has been a great uh, reporter, investigative reporter for years. And their publication online is called The Intercept. And uh, so they're one of the few sources of independent investigative reporting that I find very credible. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, Grant, yeah that's, that's good stuff, good advice. Um, what kind of, what are you going to go next? Like, what, what do you plan on doing now? Are you going to get into another book or more research, or are you just going to um, just, just fight, fight the good fight with uh, politics right now? Well, I do owe uh, my publisher, HarperCollins, one more book, and then I'm going to hang it up, because <laughs> <Yeah>. book writing <laughs> takes a lot out of you. Uh, I couldn't have done this book myself. I was contracted to do that before my stroke, but I've then went to my sister, Margaret Talbot, who's a great writer on staff of the New Yorker magazine. And Margaret, God bless her, agreed to uh, to collaborate with me. So we're both working on this book. It's called By the Light of Burning Dreams, and I think we really need it these days. Because what it is, it's going to be a profile of eight uh, American revolutionaries, not from the old days, but from the 60s and 70s. And these are going to be uh, moments in their lives. Uh, Dennis Banks and Madonna Thunderhawk from the American Indian Movement, uh, Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers, uh, and a number of others, uh, looking at decisions they made in their life, major decisions that not only changed their lives forever, but the course of American history. And so in, in Dennis Banks and uh, Madonna Thunderhawk's case and Russell Means, the leaders of the American Indian Movement, I look at Wounded Knee, that amazing, uh, you know, uh, stand they took in South Dakota in 1973, and how they withstood the entire might of the Nixon's army uh, encircled their encampment there. They had occupied this hallowed ground of the Wounded Knee Massacre back in the 1800s. And uh, for months, they held on for weeks and weeks, uh, and, you know, all kinds of uh, firepower was directed at them, you know, amazingly. Only two Indians were killed, Native Americans. But the question was, how could Dennis Banks get out at night? How could he live to fight another day? Because they knew his people that they were going to kill him when they arrested him. That was how uh, angry and mobilized Nixon's forces were. And so the story of how he escaped that night, how he was led to freedom by a young Navajo named Lenny Foster, is an amazing story. And living to fight another day, really, is the American Indian motto. Um, that's what they've had to do uh, for so many years now. So I was fortunate to interview Dennis Banks before his death uh, not long ago, and Lenny Foster, who was a young Indian at the time, who was the scout who led him through the enemy line, so to speak, a terrifying night where they got through and they escaped on the final night of the Wounded Knee Siege. So... I think this book will give people some hope, some inspiration, uh, talk about some of the mistakes that the people in the movement, as it was called in those days, made, what we can learn from today as we rebuild uh, a new America. And uh, so that's what I'm working on with my sister. Oh, sounds good. What, what do you think of the left 
back in the 60s and 70s compared to now. I mean, one of the comments you have is at the beginning of your speech is why is Donald Trump still in office and still alive? And I've heard people comment that, like, why isn't someone, you know, uh, taking him out and that, you know, not that I'm saying that that's what should happen. But yeah, um, but um, the left seemed to be much more um, aggressive in the 60s and 70s with the Black Panthers and all the movements and people were more focused and they had uh, people on the right paid attention to them compared to now. Um, do you think it's quite a bit weaker now or what's your thoughts? Yeah, and by the way, the violence back in the 60s and 70s, political violence, was overwhelmingly coming from the right. Yeah. Um, I mean, from the organized, uh, you know, state power in the case of the assassinations of Ken the two Kennedys, Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X. Those were uh, not from the left, of course. The violence that came from the left was fairly minimal in comparison. There was a lot of racist, malicious stuff, right-wing stuff all through the 60s and 70s, um, uh, like we have today. Um, the right, the left-wing violence was kind of limited, like the Weather Underground briefly, you know, had sort of uh, committed uh, acts of terrorism to protest the war and what they felt was an imperialist state. Um, but they tried to avoid casualties, actually, after blowing themselves up in the famous townhouse explosion in New York, where... Yeah. Several members of the Weather Underground were killed. Uh, so, for the most part, they made sure that there weren't people in the buildings they blew up and so on, and they took precautions. Um, I don't agree with that path, by the way. I felt that was wrong, and certain uh, people who I do respect enormously out of the 60s who were great new left leaders, like Tom Hayden, uh, was invited to go underground, you know, uh, in those years, and and ultimately made the right decision to stay above ground and keep working as an activist. And then, of course, he went into electoral politics. I think that was the great mistake of the new left, by the way, that not enough people followed Tom Hayden's path into electoral politics. Tom, of course, ran for U.S. Senate in California when he was married to Jane Fonda. They had a very powerful progressive organization here in California that really moved the Democratic Party to the left under Jerry Brown. Uh, they formed an alliance with him as when he was governor, and, and they made a lot of uh, great changes, uh, you know, in, in energy uh, and uh, sort of corporate regulation, environmental regulation, and so on. They had a real impact in California. Tom recently died, of course. Um, now, he was called a sellout by many on the left, though. They thought that, that he was uh, compromising too much by going into uh, electoral politics, which they felt was too corrupt. Uh, you know, but Bernie Sanders' campaign actually echoes Tom Hayden's Senate campaign in many ways in calling for national health insurance, for a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. So some of these themes haven't changed, sadly, in like the last 30, 40 years. Um, so what do I think we need today? I think we do need to learn that you need to build a movement like Bernie Sanders has, not just get into electoral politics, but keep a movement going because you're going to lose. Uh, that's the nature of politics. You will lose more times than you win, probably. Uh, but then you start to win, and you catch uh, energy if you stay together. In San Francisco, it looked, for instance, that uh, Big Tech had totally taken over this town. You know, many more homeless on the street, the wealth gap exploding, 
the city I, I felt that I loved and I celebrated in the season of the witch, my book about San Francisco history, I felt we were losing it uh, to just one or two years ago. And lo and behold, then we've elected a string of progressive, fiery progressive officials to office in the last year alone. Chesa Boudin, who, by the way, is the son of, uh, of two other underground members. Um, they were in jail when he grew up, and he was raised by two other members of the Weather Underground. He became uh, uh, our district attorney, of all things, uh, normally a law and order position. But he went, ran a very strong reformist uh, you know, campaign, and he won. Uh, San Francisco has now got a supermajority of progressives on the Board of Supervisors, and, and we recently passed a number of progressive measures aimed at controlling corporate growth in the city and promoting affordable housing. So, you know, people are fighting back at the local level. I think we need to have that movement spirit the way we used to back in the 60s where we called each other brothers and sisters. We felt that we were bringing a new world into being, and we uh, knew that solidarity was very important. Whatever our personal disagreements were with people or our tribal disagreements, we needed to bring people together. And, you know, that's what Martin Luther King, by the way, uh, was doing before he was killed. He was trying to put together an amazing coalition. I'm going to write about this in my new book with the Poor People's March on Washington. Bobby Seale told me he reached out to him, to the Black Panthers. People thought, you know, Martin was all about civil rights and about uh, nonviolence. But he was reaching out to the Panthers, who famously were armed, of course, to join him on this, uh, not only a march on Washington, uh, but an occupation. It was going to be an occupation of Washington to force Congress to uh, transfer funds from the Vietnam War to social spending. And Bobby Kennedy had given Martin Luther King the idea to do this, two of our great leaders who both, of course, were tragically assassinated in uh, 1968. And I believe that both of them were killed for a reason. Um, so imagine if they had lived, if Martin Luther King, if he had succeeded in uh, putting pressure on Congress to wind down the war in that year and begin shift money to poverty programs, to civil rights programs, and so on, we'd live under such a different country. Instead, my generation, baby boomers, you know, have Donald Trump uh, in the White House. So I think we succeeded in many ways in the cultural wars, in uh, you know, in terms of gay marriage and feminism, uh, and uh, in, in many other areas. But we have woefully uh, not succeeded in a in a political uh, transformation of the country. You know, the same powers that would control the country back then are controlling the country today. The forces of greed and violence. We have permanent war. We have the wealth gap growing bigger than ever. We have the one percent in you know stranglehold controlling our political campaigns. Uh, with billionaires running for office or billionaires paying for campaigns. Michael Bloomberg is now you know subsidizing the Biden campaign with his fortune. You know that's not that's corruption. That, that's oligarchy, not democracy. So I think what we have to learn from the sixties is to get active again. Get pissed off and to be in this for the long haul, to build a movement that gets into politics and actually confronts power at its very source. Well, on that note, I'd like to know if you're going to be doing any more public public speaking. I sure seem to be. 
I'm coming out of my shell, I think. Um, I've been doing a lot of speaking in the Bay Area uh, for the last month or so with the publication of my book, Between Heaven and Hell, and uh, I'm ready to go. You know, if people invite me to their communities, I'll be there. Um, I love Seattle, and uh, my sister, I say, and her family are in Portland. I grew up in Los Angeles. You know, hey, the West is the best. We voted for Bernie. Let's not forget Nevada, Colorado, <laughs> Utah. <laughs> I guess yeah. Washington and Oregon haven't had have their primaries yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if Bernie won there, too. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, so, no you know, I think we're building a progressive network uh, throughout the country, but particularly here on the West. Yeah. Yeah. And, and me being a Canadian boy, I uh, understand um, socialism in an economic state and not as a, uh, you know, a political thing. So, um, you know. It's just, it's too bad people don't get it. Well, they like socialism in effect. They like socialism when it helps them, that's for sure. They, uh, most people want national Medicare because they know what a nightmare the American medical system is. I mean, as soon as you have a, a problem, even if, when you have so-called insurance, you see how full of holes it is. And, uh, you know, I have to raise money for my own, uh, you know, health care uh, through GoFundMe. When I was in uh, the stroke ward, um, and I had, you know, Medicare still, but there were holes in my coverage, and, uh, you know, I wasn't making any money because, obviously, I was in no shape to write or speak, and I'm a freelancer. So my son, my wife, my family did a GoFundMe, and God bless all these people around the country, many of whom, most of whom I didn't know, but liked my writing, and they, you know, uh, contributed over $40,000 when we needed it most until I uh, could get disability. So, um, you know, Bernie has pointed out that what kind of country is it where people have to crowdfund mm -hmm. their basic health care needs? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's immoral. So, you know, whether or not Bernie triumphs, uh, his ideas have to be live on. We have to keep fighting for them. And we, if Biden does get elected president, we have to keep pushing him to enact Bernie's program as, as, uh, as much as we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't get it. I, I just don't understand it. Uh, I, my heart attack I had was two years ago. I was in Canada. It's it's all paid for and done. You don't you don't pay any money, and the the treatment was fantastic. So yeah, uh, as it, it should be. It can be done. You know, it's not <laughs> it's not impossible. So um, anyway. yeah, and I remember you sent me a picture of your uh, hospital room. <laughs> it looked like a hotel. Yeah, I know, and I hear all these stories when I'm uh, in L.A. and around in Seattle, and it's like, no, it's nothing like that. It's it's just fine. I, I don't understand where these stories come from. But your commie pinko health care. Yeah. yeah, that's it. It's a commie pinko. Well, did you, did you see, unfortunately, after Biden's good showing on, at Super Tuesday, health stocks in this country, the health insurance industry, soared. Mm -hmm. Because they knew that they were going to have, you know, someone friendly now leading the Democratic, Democratic Party instead of Bernie, who feels that what a radical idea, health care is the right, uh, the privilege, as he always says. Um, boy, something has got to be done to curb the enormous power of the medical industry complex in this country, because until we do, people are going to be suffering, you know. Uh, millions of people who are going to be left uncovered or undercovered by the insurance industry, which exists not to help us, but to screw us and, and, and make 
obscene profits in the in big pharmaceutical industries too. Mm-hmm. So Bernie's on the right track there. People support that. Uh, I think people are just afraid that uh, he won't beat Trump. I think that was a lot of vote that Biden got was out of fear. And now that people weren't voting their hopes, unfortunately, they were voting their fears. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think people are, are scared. You know, on the right, you've got a lot of people uh, spewing about socialism as if um, in countries that are, you know, they have a political socialist country and so they think that everything's being taken away from them and and they Mm -hmm. you know they just don't really get it but yeah there was there's a lot of uh scaremongering it reminded me of the cold war a lot of scaremongering you know bringing up cuba for god's sake and trying to hang (laughs) cuba around uh yeah uh for bernie's head you know anderson cooper on 60 minutes and then you know Crazy Chris Matthews, MSNBC finally had to fire him. I, I know Chris. I used to be his editor back here at the San Francisco Examiner where he started his journalism career a long time ago. You know, but he got crazier and crazier. And, you know, finally saying, you know, if Bernie Sanders wins, they're going to, it could be like Castro, you know, they could be hanging people in Central Park, <laughs> people like me. Like, what the hell? I mean, you know, that's how insane the hysteria has become. Yeah, it's too bad. Well, David, it's been great talking to you. Now, um, do you have a website as well, or just just uh, are you on Amazon and social media? I'm on Facebook, actually. People should come to my Facebook page and uh, join in the conversation. Uh, I update every day, so I'm very active there. Fantastic. We're going to have your books on our website, and we'll have your Facebook page link as well, so people can just click on it and find it if, they, if they're listening. Um, it's been incredible. Thank you for, for being on the show, David. Well, thanks to both of you, and, and stay healthy. Same to you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.